Hey, everybody. My name is Chris, the lead pastor here at Trinity, and it's a joy to be together in, in God's house today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Daniel chapter 3. As Ashley said, we started last week a study in Daniel. It's a, a rare thing for us to, uh, to jump off the, the lectionary and the, the Bible teaching plan that we as Anglicans have, and yet occasionally it's a, a really good opportunity to uh, study through. So we're going to do a very un-American thing this morning. We're going to read lots of the Bible. Uh, we live in a world where we've been Twitterized. We think we can only hear things in short little snippets. So we're going to stretch you today. The, the scripture is going to stretch you because I'm going to read lots of it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to enter into this story. I want you to uh, not get hung up on the words. I want you to uh, think, which for many of us, uh, you're going to think about something that's going to be memorable. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So if you spend any time in kids' church, you know about the fiery furnace. So you're going to hear that story, and let's hope that the Lord will help us uh, today to, to hear the word of the Lord um, in the Scripture. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for satraps and prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and the officials of all the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, the entire musical assemble, ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace of fire. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, you get where we're going now, and the entire musical ensemble, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews, and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, Trigon, harp, drum, the entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and that you do not worship the golden statue that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drums... 
and the entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. And he ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary. And he ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up quickly. And he said to his counselors, was it not three men that we bound and threw into the fire? And they answered, true, O king. And he said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not harmed. Not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that others blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for very bizarre and strange stories like the one we just read. And I pray today in your power that you would help us to build a bridge between this ancient story in the book of Daniel and our own lives today. God, we also ask you to help us anticipate these baptisms and blessings and affirmations that are going to happen in a few moments. But first, God, help us to be here, present here. Help us to see and receive and think about the things you'd want us to see and receive and think about. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a story from the Bible Stories like this are so uh, strange that we almost are tempted to relegate them to another place. And if you spent any amount of time in church when you were growing up, you are tempted to relegate this to Sunday school. And if you think about it, though, this is really not a Sunday school story. A story about people being thrown into furnaces is really not a story for children. And yet we sometimes think about stories like this and stories like Noah and the ark and Daniel and the lion's den. And we think, oh, these are such sweet Uh, children's stories. They're they're totally not. 
Uh, so I, I apologize to those of you elementary school kids who are in the room today, and there are many of you. Um, but we're going to look at this story, and we're going to try to see what God would have us to see. As Ashley said, over the last number of week, or the last week and the next number of weeks, we're going to be sitting in this ancient book of the Bible, Daniel. And we're going to try to learn from Daniel about how we're meant to be in our day and age. So today we're going to look at what idolatry means. Um, yay, welcome to church. <laughs> the first movement in this passage involves this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. So if you are unfamiliar, as most all of us are, with what cubits actually look like, people have speculated that this golden statue was about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. So it would have been hard to, to miss. And Nebuchadnezzar sets it up in, in the field of Dura, there in the province of Babylon, and he says to everyone, um, I want you to, to worship this visible statue. Here's what I would say to you about idols. Uh, many of us would say, well, we don't live in a, in a, in a context or culture where uh, we have idols. Um, if you are from Thailand or from somewhere else in the world, then um, shrines and, and statues and idols would be m- more prevalent. But here we think, oh, this is not our deal. Here's how I would define an idol for our purposes that would also apply to, to the ancient world. An idol is a visible, tangible, seemingly controllable object of worship and devotion that's other than or a rival to the one true God. So using the biblical thinking, an idol is anything other than God that calls for our attention and our affection and our devotion. Idols are, in many respects, easier to, to deal with than an unseen God. A God that we, we have to worship and search for and seek, but we can't actually engage with our own eyes. It would have been pretty easy for people to go out into that field of Dura and see this 90-foot statue and think, oh, that, we can do something about this. We can fall down and worship this thing. When I think about Nebuchadnezzar, and I think about me, and I think, how am I like Nebuchadnezzar? And, and I think that when you read the Bible, you got to find these places where we're invited not just to see a guy like him as the bad guy that we can't identify with, but somebody that we might share some stuff in common with. I think for Nebuchadnezzar, this idol that he made was a kind of effort uh, to point to something that he longed for. Last week we read Daniel 1. We didn't read Daniel 2. Uh, we're preaching in Daniel 3. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a giant statue. And the head of the statue is gold and the chest and the arms are silver and the trunk is bronze and then it's iron and its legs and then its feet. The statue is a mixture of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant rock come and crush the statue. And he says, who's going to tell me what this dream means? And Daniel tells him, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the gold, but other kingdoms are going to come after you and one day they're all going to fall. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? It's like, I'm going to build me a really big gold statue because I want to feel secure and I want to feel significant and I want to feel settled and I want to feel powerful. So his response to his dream was to say, I'm going to like double down on my own dominion. For many of us, our pursuit of idols, of things that are rivals to God is what happens when we feel insecure and we want to double down on our own dominion. So Nebuchadnezzar makes a giant golden statue and it points to what he hopes would be true. 
He wants to be okay. He wants to be powerful. He wants to be preserved. He wants to feel comforted. So rather than pursue an elusive God, he says, I'm going to pursue something concrete that will make me feel like maybe everything's going to be okay. And the second movement in this passage is he says to all the musicians, all the governors, all the people, when the music plays, you will fall down and worship this thing that I have made. And over and over and over again, right? The writers are they're singing and all the people come and they fall down and they worship. And I just want to say this to you. I believe that as human beings, whether we're particularly religious or not, that we were all made to worship. Worship literally means to ascribe worth to. Um, worship means to render value and worth to something else. And I would submit to you that as humans, as much as we don't like to admit it, we were actually made to come under, to fall down and worship. The, the idea of falling down in front of a deity or an idol simply means to place yourself under their authority. You, as much as you have been told that you're a free agent, you want to worship. You do. And we either learn how to worship the one true God or we worship other things that aren't as impressive as God. I'm a Georgia fan. We want to worship. If you don't believe that people were made to worship, go to a college football game. I mean, when I die, I'm going to have a, a bulldog, a falcon, and a brave as my pallbearers so they can all let me down one more time, you know? Um, we... It's like we, every year, you know in our house that, it's, um, that it's, it's early fall because we're like, it's going to happen this year. I was so glad that Alabama lost yesterday. Just so thankful so that they now know how the rest of us feel all the time. So we're disappointed by things that will never satisfy us, but we continue to put our hopes and our, our life in the hands of other things. And we do it with success. We do it seeking affluence. We do it seeking power. We do it uh, looking for comfort. We do it to try to feel significant. And so we worship money and we worship sex and we worship uh, privilege and we worship football teams and we worship uh, celebrity. We live in a world where we, like Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors says, are idol-making factories. God is hard to deal with, so we make these other things that are easier to deal with. They're easier to spot. And we tend to want to come under those things. Today, we come into a room like this in some spaces in our lives, having come under a kind of spell that is other than God. Some of us have bent our knee to our jobs. We've bent our knee to a kind of pursuit of a dream that will never ultimately satisfy us. Some of us are addicted and distracted and worn out. And it's in your nature to bend your knee. It's to whom or what will you bend your knee? I believe that's a fundamental question of human existence. Try though you may, you will incline yourself to come under something or someone so the third movement in our passage, I think, invites us to think about what idols feel like. What do they do? If we're, meant, if we're gonna come under, let's look at seven things that idols do. So this may reframe your understanding of an idol. Idols are tangible, relatively easy to engage. 
I, I mean, you just go into the stadium. It's like the lights in Athens just invite you to engage now. They want you to, to give to them something that they really don't deserve, your allegiance and your money and your affection. Idols tend to pull our attention away from God to something or someone's else. Idols train our appetites. They actually condition us. The, the, the idols of our world shape our wants. And, and here's an example. Our, our desperate pursuit of affluence, and there's nothing wrong with financial resources, but when your desire for security and significance climbs the ladder of priority, it begins to shape what you want and then therefore what you believe you need in order to fulfill its end rather than surrender and submission to a God who says, blessed are the poor, give away your resources. Idols shape us and tell us that we need and then therefore want things that actually can't ever do the job of bringing true satisfaction. Number four, idols are fashioned. They are necessarily derivative. Um, People make idols. Idols come, like in in Nebuchadnezzar's case, from gold mined from the earth, thrown in a furnace, fashioned by people to be a thing. I believe that idols, for you and me, who probably don't have gold statues in our house or in our yard or out in the field, idols are born out of the shadowy side of our desire. So I would just ask you this question, what do you desire? If you desire security, you'll be tempted rather than look to God who can give you that security, to look elsewhere to feel safe and secure. So we think if I just protect myself, if I build walls around my heart, if I um, defend myself, if I do X, Y, or Z, then I'll feel safe. And then that desire can become its own idol. And we fashion it, and it's like an underbelly of the things that we really long for. It's our own effort to make our way in the world rather than look to a God who requires our submission. Number five, idols arise from things we believe we control. If I had a quarter for every time somebody said, I can control this, I can can do this, whether it's substance abuse or some sort of illicit desire, I can keep it within its boundaries. We believe we can control. Here here are the the two most important though. We'll put six and seven up together. Here's how I know I'm dealing with an idol. At first, it requires very little of me and promises everything. So think about your, your life, whether it's um, you know, your, your iPhone or a sexual appetite or an addictive pattern or behavior. At first, it takes very little and requires very little commitment from us to feel this promise of a real high high. But as is the nature with addiction, this is the nature of idolatry. Ultimately, an idolatrous thing will require more and more and more of us and promise us less and less and less. And we see this with addiction. It's like at first addiction requires little and promises a lot. But at the end, it's a master. And we all of a sudden feel like we're owned by it and get very little back. I would submit to you. Whether it's a chemical addiction or a substance addiction, or if it's a desperation for significance or security or affluence, which were the things driving Nebuchadnezzar, the nature of an idol is to ultimately own you 
and give you nothing in return. And so we chase and we chase and we wear ourselves out and it actually breaks us down. Are there forces at play in your life that are calling for your allegiance, calling for you to fall down and worship? And how are those things working for you? Down what road is it leading you? How is it shaping you? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say no. And that brings us to to the third movement in the passage. There's an accusation of rebellion made against them. Um, They say no, they push back against the force of idolatry. Maybe they recognize like the gold cow and and Babylon in general are not our true home. It's like that song we sang at the end of our music. Um, We were made to feast in the halls of Zion, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. And they were like, we're not going to go out on the field of Dura and do that thing everybody else is doing. And I want to say to you that if you push back against the broader culture, If you push back, there will be a mark placed on you in some way or another, in some form or fashion. Now, that doesn't mean we need to go looking for trouble, but I'm going to tell you some trouble will find you if you walk out of step with the wider culture. So they say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're bad rebels. And Nebuchadnezzar's furious. So he heats up the furnace and he says, I'm going to burn people who don't do what I told them to do. He's doubled down on his desire for significance, and now he's going to punish everyone who steps out of line. If you get out of line culturally with the wider trajectory of culture, you will occasionally be labeled as someone who's rebellious. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dragged in. The fire is heated, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to play the music one more time, and you had better fall down and worship. The next movement in this passage, surrender is a sign of trust. What I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is this. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you. We don't need to defend ourselves. And then they say two things that are of vital importance. They said, our God is able to protect and preserve us. And that's ultimately what happens in this instance. But don't forget the rest of what they said. But even if he doesn't, we will not bend our knee and come under anything and anyone but God. We will not settle for a substitute or a rival. So what do they do? They surrender. And they're bound and they're thrown into a place of fire And then Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, didn't I throw like three dudes in there? And that leads us to the last movement in this passage. God is with us, especially when it's hot. And we live in a world where we've been told that suffering is bad. And that if we suffer, that means something is wrong. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they can teach people like you and me is that if we say yes to God, we will inevitably find ourselves in places that feel heated up and uncomfortable. But God will be with us there. Y'all hear me say this. God is willing to enter the fires of your life. The question is, are we willing to enter the hot places? It's, it's, it's God's desire to get into the furnace with you. The question I have to ask myself every day is, am I willing to get into those furnaces? 
Am I willing to allow the heat to be turned up around me? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are unburned, but the bondage of their life is burned away. Their bounds, the things that bound them are now off of them, and Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. I believe the Lord wants you to surrender whether or not you feel like you're guaranteed a happily ever after ending, because that's actually not the purpose of this story. The purpose isn't do this, this, and this, and you'll get this. The purpose is do this, this, and this, and God will be with you whatever happens. So maybe today some of us need to know that if we take a step of obedience, God will be with us. And I just want to say to you, he will, and he, he is. We have to actually trust him. So where's the Lord asking you to push back against the things that would want to own you? And this is hard discernment, y'all. But I think it's critical for you and me. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.